Why has a microscopic virus turned our world upside down? So that high anxiety and low depression are at unprecedented labels, uh, levels, excuse me. Um, why has almost every corner of the planet begun to isolate? We saw that happen over the last three years. Knowingly sabotaging the education of their children and the economy. Why were they willing to do that, to go that far? Because they believed they were fleeing the wrath to come. Not the wrath of God, the wrath of COVID. A virus that could potentially harm them, would cause them to suffer or even die. And so the whole world mobilizes in a very chaotic and fearful way. All the while, taking very little heed of the sin virus, And it's much more deadly force. Sin has the power to separate people eternally from a loving creator. That's what, that's, that's what sin does. Sin means missing the mark. God says, be holy as I am holy. And, and we miss that mark every day. We fall short of the glory of God every day. And so there is this separation. And sin has this quality about it that it destroys everything good and beautiful that God has made. And so God hates sin. And what it does to us. So that a person incurs the full wrath of God against sin in a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14 now, I know I don't like teaching. I mean, what is the title of my message today? Wrath to come. You know, I, I struggle with that. Who wants to listen to that message? But Jesus talks far more about hell than he did heaven. John the Baptist warns them here because it's a reality. A holy God cannot allow sin in his heaven, which he has prepared for us. Hell was prepared for Satan and his emissaries, but it will be shared for every person that rejects the love of God, the Savior of the world. In today's text, John the Baptist warns liberals and conservatives alike of the fate awaiting those who refuse to take seriously the unfailing love of God and the provision that he's made through Christ that saves us from such unquenchable heat and separation. We join John in the Jordan. This is John the Baptist, where he's been baptizing droves of people. They're coming from all over Jerusalem and Judea to this little uh, Outpost on the Jordan River. People who are turning from going their own way to going God's way. That's, that's where we left off 
last week. Verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, or you family of poisonous snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is God's righteous recompense to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's that word fire again. Serious business. And these were the leaders. These were the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, 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 the religious leaders and the, the aristocracy of Israel. And he's Talking to them like this? Seems like he's not really that concerned with uh, you know, them putting their stamp of approval on him at all. He didn't live by the fear of man and what man's going to think of me like so many of us do. He lived with his eye on glorifying God. It took, took that fear right out of him. John and Jesus after him had hard words for the pretenders, the self-righteous hypocrites. The, the Pharisees were so different from the Sadducees, which is why it's kind of interesting that they're lumped together here. But they, they're like, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, having an arm-in-arm arm, going for a walk. being seen together. They were hyper-legalists, the Pharisees, who followed the law outwardly to the letter, circumspect in every way, but they had little love for anyone but themselves. And Jesus referred to them as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. What is that? What is that? What, what does that conjure up? Whitewashed tomb, is it, they, they, they were stellar on the outside but corrupt on the inside. That's, again, Jesus and John, they didn't spare uh, these hard words with these self-righteous hypocrites. That's, that's the Pharisees. They were religious hypocrites. Sadducees were liberal rationalists. They didn't believe in the supernatural, the eternal nature of our souls, or heaven and hell. Didn't believe in angels. They lived only for the here and now because that's all they could see. Does that remind you of anyone? Like so many people on this planet. And even with such little faith, it was the Sadducees who enjoyed the, priest, uh, the privilege of priesthood. Many of the priests were Sadducees and they controlled, they had the controlling influence in Israel's Supreme Court, the, the Sanhedrin. <laughs> With such little faith. And I can't go into and describe really fully the animosity that these two groups had. I mean, you see the divisive nature that the Republicans and the Democrats got going on in this country. It wasn't always that way. 
But that's where it is now. Buck Storm has uh, written a book called The List. It's a novel. But if you like a good read, um, and one that will inspire your faith and take you back to first century Israel, so you can smell it and taste it and understand this contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that's, that's the best book I've read. It's just excellent. See, so you have Nicodemus who is a teacher of Israel. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. And you have Joseph of Arimathea, who's a Sadducee, whose tomb Jesus borrowed for a weekend. That is not fiction. That, that's true. But, but he, he draws. He's done his homework. Buck Storm has done his homework and has uh, really done a great job um, Painting for us what, what it was like for these two to come together. And the thing that brought them together was they're trying to describe or just decide what to do with Jesus. They were members of the Sanhedrin. And they both come together and decide we're gonna, we're gonna look at the Old Testament and see how the description of the Messiah lines up with Jesus. And so they're both pulling it in, and they form a bit of an alliance and then eventually a friendship. Kind of like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax gatherer, both part of Jesus' gang. That would never happen. They would be at each other's throat. They would despise one another normally. But Jesus has a way softening our hearts and making us one. And I love the diversity that we have here. I mean, many of us, if we weren't believers, probably would have nothing in common. <laughs> Wouldn't hang together. But here we are in this community of faith and how sweet it is. Why would these two groups come to John to be baptized? Perhaps the Pharisees came because they love to be seen by men. That's the accusation, uh, accusation that Jesus makes in Luke uh, chapter 11. They love to go and pray on the street corners. I'm praying now, folks, so everybody can see me. If they were fasting, they would go around and just look all messed up. And the people would say, whoa, man, it's fasting for this guy. What a, what a holy person. He must be. They love to be seen by men. So there they are going out because there's some little, you know, hubbub on the Jordan going on. Perhaps the Sadducees came because their philosophy that excluded heaven was a hopeless philosophy. Hard to live that way. Perhaps the futility of their lives and the conviction of their conscience Warn them to flee from the wrath to come. But John, get this, he wouldn't accept them. People that if they came into the doors here, you know, these aristocracy or these, you know, movers and shakers in our society, we would, we would go, wow, how cool it is to have them here. Hey, come and sit in the front seat. By the way, the front seat's always open. I love to see, we got some in the front today. And I love you for it. It takes a certain element of courage and commitment to sit in the front. <laughs> we would welcome them. 
John rebukes them. He wouldn't accept their repentance because it wasn't sincere. He challenges them in verse 8, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, words are cheap. Show me the fruit of a changed life, a changed attitude, changed behavior. Because any true change that takes place up here, and that's what the word repentance means, metanoia in the original Greek, to change your mind, Any true change that begins here, it's going to work itself out here and through our attitude and actions. And he saw these guys, they were just posers. And it's kind of, John was, you know, he had a prophetic calling and and prophets had a tough time with hypocrisy, just gritted on them. And he calls them out and he would not accept them. John could read their minds. He knew of the confidence that they put in their flesh because they were related by blood, by DNA, to Abraham, whom God did accept. And that's where their confidence was. You know, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. Going back 2,000 years. I trust in him. The fact that I am his offspring bodily. But why was Abraham given a right standing before God? Do you remember? If you you know the story of Abraham, God told Abraham some wonderful things that were going to happen. That through his seed and Paul in the New Testament, explains that it was singular. It wasn't plural. He wasn't talking about the nation Israel. It was but through one seed, one seed, capital S, also could be used for Savior. Through one seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believed God, and God said, you're righteous. You're right with me. Not because you're from Ur of the Chaldeans. It had nothing to do with your genealogy. It has to do everything to do with your faith. He looked ahead to the promise of Christ and believed that God would do as he said. It was his faith in Christ that saved him. As Jesus points out in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 56, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Again, this guy lived 2,000 years before Jesus, Abraham. And he's telling these religious leaders, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. How can he say that? Abraham's body has long since turned to dust. What he is saying is that Abraham saw it with eyes of faith. Because he believed. And henceforth, anyone that believes like Abraham believes in the promised Messiah and the Christ were considered Abraham's spiritual offspring. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought it was enough to be Abraham's physical offspring. 
You see all this, these wars and division of people thinking that they're better than other people. Because their ethnicity or their anything, education, financial status, all of that goes away. It must go away when we come to Christ. When we kneel at the foot of the cross in abject humility, see, I bring nothing. I bring nothing. I have no credentials. I am a sorry sinner. Please save me. That's the only way in. That's how Abraham got in. But these Pharisees and these scribes are trying to get in another way. It was a notion that John shattered when he said in verse 9 of our text, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. According to John, again, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 28. John the Baptist was baptizing at Bethany, east of the Jordan. Now, they describe it as Bethany beyond the Jordan because it wasn't the only Bethany mentioned in the New Testament. There was another Bethany right about there and right about here. It's kind of there toward toward the right side of the M. That's two miles southeast of Jerusalem. That's where Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. That's where his sisters Mary and Martha entertained Christ. They They had a deep friendship. But this isn't that Bethany. This is Bethany beyond the Jordan. In that same text of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 28, in the King James, Bethany is translated Bethabara, which literally means the house of passage, because this was the place where the nation Israel crossed the Jordan into the promised land to take possession of it. And when they did, Joshua took 12 stones from the riverbed and set them up on the west side of the Jordan in the promised land. They were stones of remembrance. We're going to remember God's faithfulness. He took us 40 years through the wilderness, and now we're in the promised land to take what he has given us, to take possession of it as obedient lovers of God and servants of the Lord. So he said that that became a sacred monument that would have been cared for generation by generation all the way down to the time of Christ. And what I imagine happening at Bethabara is John the Baptist with a wave of the hand saying God is able actually to make these stones. children of Abraham, the things they represent, these 12 stones of remembrance, represented the 12 tribes which became the nation Israel. You see, he can make this offspring of Isaac and offspring of Abraham, which would have been a devastating thought, a very humbling thought for the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees. Having believing parents and believing grandparents is a huge advantage in this life, but God isn't looking at our lineage. He's not evaluating us based upon our Christian heritage or our church attendance or our religious exercise. He's looking at the heart. Right? What does he see when he looks at our hearts? Again, what made David a man after God's own heart? This, is, this was God's testimony of David. He is a man after my own heart. It wasn't the fact that David was perfect. He was so far from perfection. But he prayed things like, God, search my heart. I want to be true to you. I don't want to be a poser, a pretender. I want to be authentic. Search my heart. See if there's any hurtful way in there that I would turn from it to your fruitful path. Does it beat for him or only for ourselves? Is it cluttered with vain pursuits or does it wholeheartedly thirst for God? Again, the psalmist says, my my heart thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. The self-righteous Pharisee and the self-willed Sadducee honored God with their lips, but Jesus said, their hearts are far from me. This is quoting the Old Testament. It wasn't enough to give the words homage to God verbally. He says, they honor me with their lips all day long, but their hearts are far from me. They lack compassion. They lack mercy. They lack goodness. The natural fruit of a life in fellowship with God. The nation Israel was in danger of disqualifying itself. This is the covenant people of God. But they're in danger of disqualifying themselves from participating in God's salvation if they didn't turn around. Indeed, the overall unbelief of the nation Israel, I mean, we have Jews for Jesus, and there's pockets of chosen people, people where the Jews are coming to this knowledge of Jesus as the Messiah. But by and large, unbelief regarding Christ is rampant and why they have been set aside, the Bible says, for a season while God harvests harvests souls from within the Gentile population, which is everybody that's not a Jew. And that's what we see going on today faithfully. John concludes in verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. You know, that would have been the dirtiest part of the body, just the feet caked with dirt and filth from the roads and an open sandal. He says, I'm not even worthy to to take his sandal off his feet. There's such humility that John had. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, 
but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's baptism was with water for repentance. It's a unique kind of baptism. A symbolic cleansing of the penitent sinners. He could get folks who lived with their backs to God to turn around, but he could not empower them to walk with God. That was the job of the one coming after him that he spoke of in verse 11. He, John tells us, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The fire here refers to God's judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the picture that John gives us to illustrate what it will be like is that of a threshing floor. You know, we don't have threshing floors today, so let me just describe. In order to separate the wheat kernel, the meat of the the wheat, uh, from its outward shell, the chaff, a sledge would be dragged over it on the threshing floor by beasts of burden. A sledge was a, was a heavy plank of wood with little nails barbed on the bottom of it. And they would drag that around. Sometime uh, the guy would stand on it. The farmer would just stand on it and it would drag it around just to crush down these heads of wheat until the shell cracked. And then they went to the next phase with the pitchfork, and that's what you see here, and they would just continually throw it up in the air and let the husk, that outer shell, which was almost weightless, just blow away and let the heavier kernel fall to the ground. The valuable wheat kernel would then be carefully preserved while the useless chaff was burned up. John the Baptist predicts that in the same way, the Messiah will separate the believer from the unbeliever. One will be carefully preserved, the other destroyed. And that's so sad because God so loved the world that no one would be destroyed. But there will be a lot of wasted lives. People who refuse to embrace God's way of salvation. So Christ's baptism with fire looks ahead to the judgment of God, but his baptism with the Holy Spirit began the day of Pentecost when the disciples were empowered to bear witness of Jesus. This was 50 days after his death and resurrection at Passover. The person and work of the Holy Spirit Anybody want to come and give a dissertation on that right now? Or is, or is that a little spooky or maybe just a little confusing? Because a lot of people have, I think, taken it and gone into left field. But the person and work of the Holy Spirit is vital to the life of the Christian and should really define normal Christianity. A normal life. He is the third person of the Godhead. 
sharing all the unique attributes. We find it in Scripture. He shares all the unique attributes that make God God. We, in our human fallen nature, would never come up with an idea like the Trinity. We might come up with you know, a polytheistic idea and then deifying forces of nature and just have a bunch of gods. Or we might just think there's one God as in one person. But who's going to come up with the one God in three persons? That's otherworldly. But that is what's taught clearly in Scripture. The Holy Spirit has work to do. And he's threefold. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but first of all, the Holy Spirit is in the world to convict us of sin. Secondly, the Holy Spirit establishes the believer in the, in the body of Christ. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit enables us to be Christ's witness. So there is that conviction of sin. There is that baptizing us in by the Holy Spirit, baptizing us into the body of Christ. And there is the enabling to be his witnesses. The baptism by the Holy Spirit is not what John the Baptist is talking about here. He says this is the baptism by Jesus, right? We all got that? Jesus, when he comes in one mighty name, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. By one Spirit, by one Spirit, we're baptized into one body. For the disciples, that happened the day Jesus rose from the dead. He appears to them. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And they were sealed with the Holy Spirit as children of God. Now, that's something that no one in the Old Testament had ever experienced. They had experienced the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, that, that work of the Holy Spirit. And many experienced what it was like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit people like Moses. Joshua, as we, were, as we talked about, Samson, Deborah, who, who for a season was a leader or a judge in Israel, David, Elijah the prophet. The Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them at certain times and for certain effect. But he didn't, they didn't live as a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's, 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 all, that's what we have. That's what Paul calls the believer. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us 24-7. I hope that maybe clears up some misconceptions. Jesus tells his disciples explicitly at his ascension in Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. This is the baptism by Jesus. He's doing the baptism, baptizing, not the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. This is Jesus doing the baptizing with the Holy Spirit in order for us to be able to manifest a changed life. In other words, to be, it's power to be his witnesses. You don't need power to belong to a family. You do need power 
to demonstrate a changed life. And that's what he provides. God will empower all those in the kingdom of God willing to serve him as king. As we come humbly before his throne, willing to be emptied of ourselves so we can be filled with God, he will anoint us with his peace and joy. He will anoint us with his problem-solving ability, his understanding and wisdom, his courage, his gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He will enable us and empower us to love others. I'm just going down the fruit of the Spirit. All the fruit of the Spirit is simply the result of being yielded and still so that God can fill us with himself. Hudson Taylor. Anyone know who Hudson Taylor is? He's that great missionary that God used so mightily in the 19th century. He founded the China Inland Mission one of the first missionaries that actually went and adopted the, the dress of the people he was trying to, to reach, learned the language, became you know, one with them in that sense. And he was so effective, so many souls won to Christ. And I think the ripple of that we see going down through all the house churches. They're having revival in China. And he said... And he speaks of how he used to strive to be empowered by God. He recognized he had a need to be empowered by God. He would strive until he realized that God's strength didn't come through striving, but through resting. We don't see an apple tree striving to produce fruit, do we? No, it's just resting and getting its roots down deep in the in the nutritious soil. God's spirit can like sap can then flow through us. COVID-19 reminds us of how fragile and tentative life is. Amen? This, this world is still dealing with some convulsion from, from that first big scare. Mobilized an entire planet to flee the potential wrath of a virus. We've since discovered, however, that some people are immune to COVID. You got another slide for me? That's right. They call them novids. People that, for whatever reason, those little, looks like, you know, Mines that they put out in the ocean to blow up ships, you know. Has no effect on them. They're just free and easy, man. Immune. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Those who trust in Christ are immune from the wrath to come. That's much more wonderful. <laughs> Like Jan said earlier, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're immune to the sin virus. Only let us be sincere in our faith. 
Let us learn from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Amen. Let us be sincere in our faiths so that we enjoy the presence of God and can be a warning and a testimony to others of a life-changing and a life-preserving Savior. That's our job until he comes to take us home. Amen? Lord, Lord, we just humbly bow our hearts before you now. What you have accomplished on our behalf, it is so great. It would be so much greater than any true vaccine that could forever make us immune to COVID, any other virus. If someone came up with that, they would just, you know, make him king of planet Earth. It would just, just be so wonderful. But what you've done is so much bigger and better than that. We just humble ourselves right now. And we invite you to come into our hearts. Lord. With David, we say, search us, Lord. See if there's any hurtful way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. We want to be friends of God, as you said David was. Do that work in us, Lord. And while our eyes are just closed and we're in prayer right now, I want to pray further with anyone here that, or watching online that has never opened your heart to Christ. Maybe you had a religious experience of some sort, but you've never really been sincere. You've never really come and to the foot of the cross and say, God, I come with nothing. I have nothing to commend myself. I am at your mercy. Please forgive me by your blood. Apply it to my life, to my sin. Cleanse me of all that you know, wrong way of thinking. Help me to think correctly about you and about people and about creation. Be my great God and Savior. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, you know, people of the covenant, the new covenant, who have trusted in Christ. But where are we right now? Are we struggling in our allegiance? And, and does our f- life not bear witness to the fruit of a life given to God? And I know we want right now to be real. We don't want to be posers or pretenders. So let's get real with God. And if you want to pray with me to just offer up your body a living sacrifice that God can come in and fill us and use us, then you too pray this prayer. It's a similar prayer. Just in the quiet of your heart, here in the room or online, just say, dear God, thank you for caring about me to the uttermost, enough to send Christ to die for me. For for Christ to become sin so that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ, through my faith in Christ, just as Abraham was. Whether it's for the first time or a renewal, God, cleanse me and fill me now. 
And use me for your glory, Lord. I want to be used. I don't want to just fill a pew. I want to be used by you for your kingdom. I want to make a difference. Fill me with a, with a vision for my life. Strengthen me in word and deed to bear witness of your goodness, your plan, and your purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.